everyone. Today on What's My Frame, I'm joined by costume designer, Joseph LaCourte. I've admired Joseph's exquisite work for years, and after spending an afternoon on Zoom with him, I am blown away by his warmth and stories. Prepare yourselves for hands down the best first job industry story in history. Talk about being thrown into the deep end and handling it with style and grace, all while landing on his feet. Pun intended, you'll see. From period and fantasy costumes to contemporary clothing, Joseph brings his fine-tuned attention to detail and unbridled enthusiasm for design to every project. As he puts it, he's a very lucky man. But to see Joseph's work on some of the most iconic shows in television, including the critically acclaimed FX series, Bossy Burden, countless HBO series, including The Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, and Divorce, it's quite clear to see luck may have been involved, but Joseph's talent is what kept him at the forefront of his industry. One of Joseph's other notable credits is Saturday Night Live. Today he shares some rare behind-the-scenes stories from New York's most iconic show. Joseph's film credits are just as impressive. Contributing his expertise to the Academy Award-winning film Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, All the King's Men, Sex in the City 2, and School of Rock, to just name a few. Whether the project calls for a modern sensibility or an interpretation of the past, Joseph brings a true sense of authenticity and a painstaking eye for detail to every costume he designs. Please join me in welcoming a very special guest to celebrate our 40th episode, Joseph LaCourt. Good morning, Joseph. Thank you so much for joining us on What's My Frame? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So we like to start each episode with just a little bit about your backstory and what brought you into the industry and into costume design and why you love it. Uh, sure. Um, well, I grew up uh, in a military family, uh, so I was born in California and then moved to Niagara Falls until I was about seven, and then North Carolina for most of my uh, junior high and high school life. Uh, and then uh, in high school, I took a class trip to New York City, and I, I, walking around the streets, I knew this is where I was meant to be. And so as soon as I could get the resources together, uh, I got myself to New York in 1990. And when I first got here, I had every job you could possibly imagine from working as a hotel concierge to a record store, sometimes multiple jobs, working at a yogurt shop, a furniture store. And then when I was in my 20s, I figure out what you want to do with your life, um, as you have to. And um, so my mom was an avid amateur clothing maker, and my grandmother was a uh, dressmaker for a department store, a wedding dressmaker for a department store in Buffalo. So I knew how to sew at a very early age. Uh, and um, I was that kid in high school who took Spirit Week to the extreme. Like, they, what, it just wasn't... It was the full thing. Everything was sewed and made. And uh, I wasn't crazy about fashion. Um, I mean, I love clothes, but I like the story that a costume tells. So that became a passion of mine. So when I tried to figure out what I was going to do in New York, I had a friend who had a friend who had a friend who was in the business. And they were like, well, you should try, you know, getting a job on Broadway, working in costumes on Broadway. And so as you did back in the day before there were uh, there was social media or easy ways to check people's references, uh, you made up a fake resume. And uh, so I did that and I went around on a Monday night uh, and dropped off my, because most of the theaters are dark on Monday. So I went around on Monday and dropped off this fake resume at every single Broadway theater door and some off-Broadway theater doors. And Tuesday morning around 1030, my, my phone rang and it was cats. And they're like, hey, can you come in and swing tonight? And I was like, sure. Uh, of course, I didn't even know what swung meant or swing meant. Uh, so I showed up and terrified. And for those who don't know what swinging means, it's when you uh, can dress any track in a show on, and you have to know every single cast member's clothing and went. So anyway, I somehow faked my way through it and uh, got a permanent job there. And from there, it all began. Uh, I stayed on, on Broadway for, I did Cats, and then I did a show called The Man Who Came to Dinner with Nathan Lane on Broadway. And then while I was doing that show, that same friend who told me to drop off a fake resume was working on a movie and said, hey, do you want to come work on this Penny Marshall film? Uh, I was like, oh, I can't. I'm working Broadway. He goes, no, no, no. It films only nights, overnight, every night. And so I would go to the theater and do two shows a day, leave the theater, go to Times Square, get in a van, go up to Yonkers and film overnight till like seven or eight in the morning and then do it all, go home, sleep for two hours and then get up and do it all again. And I did it for like three months. 
and then the show closed. Uh, it was a delimited run on Broadway. And then I got into film and television. There's like so many questions that I, I mean, <laughs> it's like I have a musical theater background. Like that's what I grew up in. And like to think of someone going from designing a resume on one day and dropping it off to being a swing on Cats, which I'm assuming Cats was already Cats at that point. Like that was like a, that was a big oh, name. Yeah. It was, it was in, yeah, it was in their final, uh, it was in their final, um, uh, year run that they were just you know just months from closing but but what a lot of people don't understand is Cats was like no other show because they actually had gutted the theater to put the show in and and everywhere backstage was only maybe maybe 24 inches wide to walk anywhere and it was all choreographed which was another thing so when the cats would come off run off to change you pull the leotard down, stay bent over five, six, seven, eight, while a pole went over your head, then you came back up and stood across the wall while a wheel went by your face. It was all choreographed on top of it. Uh, yeah, it was pretty intense. It was a, it was a hey, if you're going to do the hardest show on Broadway at the time to dress, just get it over with, I guess. I mean, I call it right now, there needs to be a new Tony category. <laughs> the, like the like the long shot like oh my gosh the shooting star how did they do it wow, wow. okay all right <laughs> I, knew I already liked you and like loved your story and your work but like so so much respect um uh, thank you. um <laughs> as much as I want to talk about cats I really want to talk about Fosse Verdon so sure. let's talk about that um You've worked on fantasy, contemporary, period projects. A personal favorite is Fosse Vernon, like I was talking about from like a dance background. <laughs> I was so thrilled to see that come to television. Um, can you tell us like your attention to detail and enthusiasm for design has not gone unnoticed and you received four Emmy nominations, which by the way, congratulations, that's oh, huge. Um, but how, do you have a favorite genre to work in? And then let's uh, dive into Fosse Verdon. Yeah, um, I do. I, I have a very, very strong passion for period costumes. I really love anywhere really from the 1930s to the 1980s. It, it was back when clothing sort of identified a time period. Um, also, the color palettes of those decades were so amazing, whether it was, you know, the pastels in the 50s or in the 60s, it was like teak and goldenrod and olive, or, or even the 80s with acid wash and neon, you know, looking back, but it, it so defined the time. Yeah. And I, I love getting lost in all those worlds. Yeah, uh, and your work is so beautiful. Like, Oh, you're very like, kind, thank you. Um, so Fosse Verdon was exceptional, and I, I, I wish that we had a second season to look forward to, but unfortunately, <laughs> It was concluded, um, but I would love to hear how you joined the show. And I've heard that Nicole Fossey was really involved in the show and helping it stay as true as possible to reality, um, which I think was one of the reasons that it was so special. Um, how did that support or alter your work and creative process having their daughter involved? Sure. Um, well, I had the good fortune of working with a remarkably talented costume designer, Melissa Toth, on a few projects in the past. And she called me one July afternoon. I was on something else. And she's like, hey, listen, I have a new project. It's about the life of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. And before she said another word, I said, when do I start? And, um, and quickly, when we got into the project, uh, we both realized how enormous it was going to be. Uh, I mean, there were so many book scenes, the Broadway musical rehearsals, the Broadway musical numbers. Uh, so we thought, uh, we had a conversation, we decided to co-design the show this way, you know, she focused a lot on sort of the out of the theater world and I focused more on the, the musicals and the dances and I mean, we worked together, but there was the workload was every, you know, every 14 days you're doing 67 book scenes and two full Broadway musicals. I mean, it was sort of crazy. Um, uh, then when Nicole Fossey was brought on board, uh, she was, uh, you know, a godsend for us. Um, she did the most remarkable thing where she rented out a studio space and brought all of her family's archives to the studio space and let the heads of departments go in and look at everything. I mean, we looked through so many family photo albums. We got to see what they wore off 
off out of the spotlight, just in their everyday life. We got to see Bob Fosse's shoes, his clothing. Remarkably, we got to see Gwen Verdon's jewelry collection. Back when Gwen was first starting out, she worked for a choreographer, Jack Cole, and he gave her a necklace. And I guarantee you, if you Google Gwen Verdon, just at any event, she has that necklace on. So we were able, she allowed us to take it and have it replicated so that, um, so that we could have, there was no way you could design something as perfect. It was so iconic for Gwen that, it, that uh, we were able to get that, as well as some earrings. There was also a moment in the show, um, right the very first time we see, um, we see uh, Michelle Williams playing Gwen Verdon come to the very first scene where she's at the hotel door with Bob Fosse. There was this chainmail beaded jacket that um, Nicole still had um, that she wore and so she wore it forward, she wore it backward, she put pieces of ribbon and tie, she made it her own and she wore it all the time. And, you know, we had it priced, it was going to be like $10,000 to sort of recreate Justice Jacket. And Nicole's like, you know what? My mother would be thrilled if Michelle wore it. So Michelle is actually wearing Gwen's jacket in the show, which was something, you know, we were so happy so that we could stay true to, to all of that. Yeah. Um, uh, Nicole also had firsthand knowledge of the way the clothes were worn or like if Bob came in and he took his jacket off, he always threw it in that chair. Or my mom loved wore lots of animal prints at home. She loved animal prints. Uh, and you can see that in her decor as well as her clothing. Um, uh, she was also uh, portrayed in the movie herself, Nicole. And so having all the pictures of when she grew up, and uh, there's a, a one thing I remember, which we're still fortunate and, and I loved is that there was a scene where Nicole is dancing with her father in the living room, Bob Fosse in the living room. And Nicole came in one day, she goes, hey, look, these are the jeans that I wore for that dance when I danced with my dad, I still have them. And the, the jeans were embroidered by Nicole herself, front and back, because back in the day, it was cool to embroider all your clothing. Yeah. And they weren't, they weren't obviously the right size and they were delicate. So, but what we had done was we had someone replicate the jeans, stitch for stitch, embroidery for embroidery. Even when we held them up to Nicole, she couldn't tell them apart. And we gave her back hers and the actress got to wear the jeans, replica of the jeans that she actually wore. So it was things like that, that, that felt, um, invaluable that we had Nicole there to, to give us all that. And, you know, and also in, she was a, she was at a lot of the filming of, of numbers or rehearsals. And so she had a lot, lots of inside information that was, you know, priceless for us, so. I, I mean, that's a gift in and of itself. Like how often do you have someone that, exactly. and also someone that was at a place to be so transparent because it was a very honest retelling of their lives. It wasn't, a pretty version of it for others to see and so that's a real gift to have both sides of that yeah. and i think that's what every everyone from every department including the director the producers on the call all wanted it to be truthful last question on fossey burden having such a large dance focus on the show was it challenging designing costumes that moved and allowed the performers like kelly barrett who played liza Kelly, she's lovely. Um, well, we knew that when it came to the costumes for the musicals and, and iconic clothing, that we would be judged if it was not accurate. So we worked tirelessly, excuse me, tirelessly to recreate the visuals that would trigger that euphoric moment in your brain, like, oh, there she is in that damn Yankees costume. You know, um, we stay true to the fabrication, the construction. Um, many of the uh, dancers in damn yankees actually in real life wore jeans and sneakers for to rehearse in and so when dancers would come over fittings and they'd see jeans and sneakers and no dance shoes and no no spandex and no leo you know uh they they would have a shocked look on their face and we had you know obviously research of actual rehearsals uh of all these shows and what they were wearing and then they got excited about the challenge and they often said when we go on set we'd be filming they're like Oh, I feel so good. I feel so grounded doing it in these clothing. I, it, I feel, it feels authentic. Yeah. So that was, that was a, a super plus. Um, Melissa always said, we got it 93% right. And I agree. I mean, many of the fabrics we used, 
that were used are no longer available. All the sweet charity dress fabrics we had to recreate from scratch. They didn't exist. Um, we had an incredible assistant designer named Isabel Simone uh, who had many different jobs, but one of her jobs was recreating and sourcing all the vintage fabrics for all the costumes. And she, as you can see from the screen, did an incredible job. Um, but there were moments uh, that we thought we had it like uh, one moment is in Sweet Charity, um, the Paula Kelly character, uh, who's one of the main people who sings in that number with Chita Rivera, we built that, you know, we, if you knew how many times we watched Sweet Charity, I mean, you can't, I mean, a thousand sounds like a lot, but I'm going to say we probably watched a thousand times, not to mention research for days and days. Anyway, we thought Sweet Charity looked pretty awesome. Two days out, I was showing someone a picture uh, who's a fashion person, um, and I was showing them a picture of the dress, and I was like, something's not right, and I can't figure out what's not right about this. And they looked at me, and they're like, oh, I, oh, I, think, I think that's pious. I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's beef. And I was like, yeah, huh? I was like, okay. And I just put it in the back of my brain, and, um, and then... Oddly enough, that night I went into yet another rabbit hole of research, and I found a Life magazine with a spread of Paula Kelly and Cheetah Rivera in the exact outfits from the show, crystal clear. <laughs> so now we, I walk into the, the costume shop the next day, we scrap the dress, and we have 24 hours now to make the new dress because it's shooting the next day. And that happened a couple of times, but... But when the New York Times review came out after the first episode, their words were, the costumes were recreated with painstakingly authentic detail. That's when we knew we had it right. It was so right. And oh, thank I, you. Think, I think anyone that has worked in the industry for any period of time can look at that show and realize that there was such an importance on everyone's part to make sure it was right. And it, it, it yeah, should, because when you read stuff, you can see it. And there was, I mean, I've, I've watched the series three times now because I <laughs> love it so much. And it's, I mean, also Sam and Michelle are two of my favorite actors and it just, it was, it was impeccable. So I could honestly, I could end the interview right now, Joseph, but we're not going to. Um, and I will say, I'm sure you know this, but Sam and Michelle could not be nicer if they tried. They're just incredible humans. I have talked about that several times on the Instagram for What's My Frame is if you ever get a chance to listen to Sam Rockwell speak about his acting work, you go. You stand up, <laughs> you go, you listen. And Michelle is the same way. I, I saw him at a Q&A when they were um, doing press for Three Billboards. And I mean, he did not have a likable character and he he doesn't get in that trap. He doesn't play. I mean, honestly, Bob yeah. Fosse, to all of his great <laughs> talent, not necessarily the most likable guy. Yeah. But just to hear him talk about his craft and the people he works with and how collaborative it is, it's it's what keeps, uh, I think all of us actors keep showing up because it's like yeah. you see and you hear people like that. But um, anyway, going back to costuming for a second. <laughs> yeah. um, Vintage shopping and thrifting have become even more popular in recent years. I mean, teenagers, that's all they do. They don't go to the mall anymore. They go thrifting. What is something only the costume department would know about sourcing vintage? <laughs> um, well, there's like, sauce. there's like other places y'all go because I've gone, I've gone and looked. <laughs> it's not that. Uh, yeah, well, the first thing is rental houses. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is uh, all of the big net, uh, all of the big studios, Disney, ABC, NBC, they all have their own rental houses. So when they finish all the shows, their clothes just don't magically disappear. They all go to the rental house where other shows come in and and and, and use the the resources for their projects. So that's that's one uh, resource. Um, there's also uh, a lot of uh, private rental houses. Um, across the east coast london is huge with some of the most phenomenal rental houses of you know 
any century you can think of. The clothes there are just spectacular. Yeah. Um, but we also do a lot of the same thing everyone does. We go store to store, city to city, and shop just like normal. Uh, in New York City and in Brooklyn, we're lucky. Every year they have um, vintage clothing expos. And so it's where all designers around the region come and bring like, I would say they bring four or five racks of their best clothes uh, to represent their store or their business. Yeah. And you go and you make, you make contacts with everybody and you find out this guy does vintage workwear, this woman does uh, 50s prom dresses, and then you build a contact list. So when you're on a show and you need a 50s prom dress, you call me like, hey, so-and-so, I need a pink prom dress in a size four. And then you don't have to run out and look for it. She's like, she'll send you photos. I got this, I got this, I got this. You want any of them? And that, and that, that's super, super helpful. There are several large vintage public bulk warehouses on the East Coast where you go and can buy clothing by the pound or, you know, at a fraction of the cost. It does require you to dig in boxes and get dirty and you want a silkwood scrub down when you leave there, but um, it is absolutely uh, a financial uh, positive outcome if you can have the time and, and know where to go for that. I will say the very last thing about vintage that I, I, I think is fantastic is if I do a period show anywhere from the 30s to the 70s, mm -hmm. I always, always make one trip to Austin, Texas. They have a jackpot of vintage there that you can't believe. They have probably, I don't know, 40 or 50 vintage stores. The prices are, the garments are priced to go and they have such a huge, huge selection. Uh, I always try to go to Austin for a couple of days because you, you just, I mean, you don't want to shop ever again when you finish because you've gone so hard. So, I'm glad to know that one of my best friends moved there about a year ago and once like the world is like travelable again I'm planning to go see her in her new house and like now I have to don't don't take your credit card <laughs> don't take cash cash only cash and set a, set a limit for yourself because obviously uh I love vintage clothing and so I'm I have to stay super focused on why I'm there and not keep seeing things for myself. Yeah, that's my little bit on vintage clothing. Oh, that's not a little bit. That was that was a wealth of information because living on the West Coast, we don't really have that same like wealth of just like a resource. Like New York really is. Right. You do a little in Los Angeles. There are probably you know, a dozen really good ones, but yeah. they're so spread out in Los Angeles too. and. Uh -huh. It's really hard, getting on oh, parking and it's a lot. It's also like out in Pasadena a lot. Of yeah. <laughs> back, you're like, that's a whole day trip. So I have to talk about the iconic fashion of Pan Am. Oh my goodness. Like, I always kind of feel like you've struck a nerve with like mainstream pop culture when you start seeing it in Halloween costumes. Yeah. And I remember seeing like all of these LA girls with like the bag and the whole thing. So please tell me, like, how 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 was that to work on? Like, just what was Pan Am like? Well, I I have to say I've always been fascinated with aviation, mm -hmm. and my grandmother, who was the the dressmaker in Buffalo, lived only several streets away from the end of the runway in Buffalo, and so as a kid, I would just sit in the backyard and watch planes take off and land all day long, and would not. I couldn't get enough of it. So I thought, oh, I'm going to grow up to be a flight attendant. That's what I'm going to do. I, I, I just know it. Um, so uh, yes, when I was gotten, I had the opportunity to work on Pan Am, I jumped at that as well. I was actually the costume supervisor on that show. And that uh, costume supervisor sort of in charge of running the entire department. Uh, they hire everyone. They schedule the, you know, they do all the day-to-day -day needs of the department. So I was running as fast as I could that show we uh, we shot 16 to 18 hours every day sometimes longer but again it was one of those massive shows with tons of extras and in different we were in different countries every episode so there was there whole cultures to sort of absorb in there um uh and those were some of you know my favorite fashion silhouettes not to mention as you said the iconic airline uniform who, who, who doesn't want to wear that um 
but one of my favorite moments was uh, we had a full fuselage of an airplane in a studio. Mm -hmm. And when you would walk into the cabin just before you'd get ready to shoot, and every extra was in the seat in full dress for the airline. The flight attendants were in the aisles rehearsing. It was overwhelming. I used to, I used to tear up. I just loved it so much. And, um, and I, I miss that moment in, in time when you used to dress to fly. I mean, if I see one more uh, pair of sweatpants on a plane that say juicy on the butt, I just, I just don't understand. I mean, you know, I mean, my mother was my mother always was like you wear fresh underwear every time you get on a plane you dress you don't know who you're going to sit next to you don't know what's going to happen so i still live by that but but uh, a lot of people do not you're exactly right there is i, I wonder sometimes like what that shift was because just like you were talking about how like the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and 80s like fashion used to be like you could look and you could like you could see where they were and now I don't know if it's all of the individualism or what it is, but there's also just this like comfortability over appearance kind of a thing. I mean, I, I people, you know, I was uh, talking to someone who's getting ready to do a, um, a 2000s project that takes place in the 2000s. And mm -hmm. they're like, I, I, they're like, anything goes. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like a melting pot. I said, but if it's contemporary, you definitely have to have some people in athleisure wear because that's all that anyone wears anymore. Oh yeah. I, I dressed up, by the way. <laughs> you look, you, well, you look phenomenal. I, I called my friend. I was like, I'm putting on makeup. I'm curling my hair. <laughs> Fine. I was just zero. Having worked in so many time periods, has there been something that you were surprised to find when researching either the wardrobe or the time frame? Something that maybe isn't just like surface knowledge, but when you started like digging in there's rabbit holes. Yeah, I am. Um, I think one thing that always surprises me when taking on a new period is finding all the intricacies of the undergarments that are worn. And some periods, you wear more clothing underneath than you do on top, and it's always and they're always constructed crazily. Or, or you're like, how in the world did someone come up with this? Uh, so that's definitely like one of the things that um that is uh, always interesting to look into. I, I also try to really immerse myself into a time period. Uh, I want to know about the construction. I want to know about the button details, the trims that were used. It's impossible to keep everything in your head at all the time, at all times. So when you go step away from a period and then go back to it, it's like a little bit of starting over, but gaining more. And, uh, and uh, that always is a challenge I like taking on. Are you a, a notebook kind of person when you're on a project or you just like I, have to be organized? I, I, um, I am. I am. Uh, 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 people will say uh, I have that disease. I've never been diagnosed, but every, you know, I'm the one who at a, when you're waiting in line at H&M to check out you, I organize every impulse item on the way up to the register. And then it looks like an employee's come through, but no, it's just me. Uh, so I'm definitely, definitely, definitely organized. Um, sometimes it's painful because I can't let it go, but uh, I, someday I should see a doctor, I guess. You're doing like a real community service there, helping out the H&M staff. <laughs> I do it in any store. <laughs> I, some, I, I sometimes stop in the grocery aisle at the vegetables and turn on the label straight forward. Oh, Joseph. Sometimes. Oh, I know. I know. That's why if I, I try to go in on a time limit whenever I go shopping, mm -hmm. like my personal self, because mm -hmm. I will just be like an hour later still straightening the shoe shelves in Macy's. I mean, this just like makes my heart happy that there's someone else that's like you. Well, yeah. Like you said. Uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully a doctor will hear this and call in and diagnose me officially. Uh, <laughs> We'll see. If we get any messages, I will forward them straight to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> All right, let's talk about your work on Divorce with Sarah Jessica Parker for a minute. That is a heartbreaking and a relatable modern series. What was your journey with the show and dressing one of the most iconic women of television? Because she, she's a queen. Yeah. Um, I guess I should start with a bit of backstory. Um, in 2010, I was given the opportunity to uh, be Sarah Jessica Parker's personal dresser on Sex in the City 2. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know what being a dresser in film and television is, a, it's a person who helps the actor get dressed each day and go to set with them and make sure they're 
costume continuity stays the same for every take and every scene. Uh, say, for instance, the actor starts the scene outside of room and walks in the room, takes a purse off their left shoulder, then takes a scarf off. Uh, one of the jobs of the dresser is to make sure that you start each take with a purse in the same location on the same shoulder facing the same direction. The scarf is tied the exact same way. So when the editor is cutting the film together, everything matches from take to take. A dresser is also responsible for making sure the actor has on the right jewelry for the right outfit every time. In the case of my first experience with Sarah Jessica, she had 87 costume changes in Sex and the City 2. Uh, that is giant. There was over hundreds of pieces of jewelry, many, many pairs of shoes, as you know, handbags, and keeping that all organized and making sure she was dressed in the right costume for the right scene and the right jewelry was a monster job. Um, and after that, it went successfully. Uh, and after that, we, we uh, did many more projects together. Uh, I was working on, I believe it was Boardwalk Empire at the time, and I got a phone call from a costume designer named Arjun Basin, who was getting ready to design this HBO show called Divorce. And he's like, hey, listen, I got your name from Sarah Jessica. I'm looking for an assistant designer. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, um, if, absolutely. Uh, Sarah Jessica's involved. I'm involved. Yeah. Um, so we got involved in the show, and um, uh, oddly enough, uh, when a show finishes the season, they take a hiatus, uh, and uh, during hiatuses, people are often offered other jobs, uh, which was the case of Arjun got another job, and um, then they needed someone to be the main costume designer, and they asked me would I be interested in taking over the role, and of course I said yes. Everyone knows that Sarah Jessica is incredibly talented. Um, but she is also incredibly, incredibly smart and incredibly knowledgeable about fashion and costume and clothing construction. So when you are fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work with her, it is 100% a team effort. She brings so much to the table. She loves discussing the role and how the clothing is going to affect her character. And uh, not to mention, you can put her in anything and she does look good. So sometimes it's a challenge to make her look bad. That's a good problem to have, though, especially yeah, it, it is. for kids. That's a good problem. Yeah, and I mean, and again, she's an incredible human being. Yeah, she is. You you've had a really good run with some really exceptional. Very lucky. Very <laughs> lucky. Now, costume design is such an integral part of world building for any project. Can you walk us through your creative process and how you work with writers or showrunners? Um, the actors themselves. Um, so often we see now that actors are also doubling as, you know, producers and helping get projects made in the new streaming uh, world we live in. Um, but how do you how do you like to bring your projects to life? Sure. Um, I think it's interesting to find out how a costume designer gets their job um, to understand uh, how it all unfolds. Um, usually you're given a script. Well, actually several costume designers are given the same script. And you read through the script, you come up with a concept, the way you envision the costume to be working for the project. And then you usually meet with the director or the showrunner, the writer, the producer, or all of them, or some of them, combo platter. And lately it's been over Zooming, which is a whole challenge in itself. Uh, and then you have conversations, and then you sit and wait. And if you're fortunate enough to get the job, you uh, sit down with the director and the writers and fully flesh out the vision of the show together yeah and th then once you all are in agreement you start designing clothes and you you know one thing i like to personally do uh before i after the initial concept is there i always like to reach out to the actor who's playing the role uh it's not always a luxury we get a lot of sometimes there's such last minute casting but if it's a major character you always like to discuss with them you know their thoughts on the character you know sometimes they don't like certain cuts of things and sometimes people have body issues and you want to you want to adhere to their comfort level uh and sometimes they have yeah i really want to wear this kind of rugged this or this beautiful that and you try to like get everyone's input and in, in find the best way to move forward and then you have you start having fittings with actors and um you take photos and then you share those photos with the director and the producers and everyone else who has to have an opinion at that time. And then, um, and then uh, if all goes well, great, you move on to the next character and then 
if there's sometimes new information comes up or new ideas come up and so you start over again which is great though because then it challenges you to find a new way to get your message across that you didn't think of before um uh and it just is a cycle especially in television you just sort of do that day after day after day after day after day i didn't actually realize that because i we've had um directors for commercials come on and they actually gave an example of a very similar process of basically you get the script in the project and then you do a full-on presentation it's i guess you all's category of an audition if you will and like doing this like full-on presentation to which i responded there would be a lot less actors if we had to do that <laughs> memorize five pages if we had to be like and this is what i see for the arc of the character and all i was like exactly like, there'd be a lot less actors <laughs> um now like we mentioned you've been nominated for four emmys first off again that's just that's huge that's huge um so nice. what was the first who was the first person you called to share the good news with with your first nomination uh well the first person i called was my mother uh, my mother uh, sacrificed so much uh, to get me where I am today. I, I can't even begin to tell you. And I know a lot of people say that, but quite frankly, my mother went through hell uh, for me to be able to choose my own path in life. And for me to be able to call her and say, hey, look, all that you went through and all I've gone through started to pay off. Uh, it's always my first call. And, and I just lost her recently, um, Thanksgiving last year, it'll be a year this Thanksgiving. Uh, but she was always, every time, you know, and she couldn't have been more proud. And she, uh, my mom was a door greeter at Sam's Club. But she, being who she is and where I'm a product of, would always dress seasonally uh, in every holiday theme, head to toe. People stopped and took pictures. And, you know, then she would, of course, always brag to people. So when I would go down to visit her, like, oh, I know all about you. Oh, no. I'm sorry you had to listen to all that. But yeah, my mom was a little local hometown celebrity in her own right. She had a hat for every, like she had 25 different Christmas hats and starting December 1st, she'd wear a different Christmas ensemble every day for 25 days. Was she a part of the Red Hat Club? No, she was She was part of her own club. I think yeah, she, she, uh, she, when she passed, I cannot tell you the amount of, uh, well, I will tell you one thing that's sort of, a, uh, what I didn't know about my mother, um, I knew she, you know, had the passion for dressing, but um, when she passed and we went into her home to take everything out, I discovered the world's largest jewelry collection from every decade, and I had no idea. We often on shows spend thousands and thousands of dollars renting jewelry or buying jewelry no matter what project I ever do again, if it's in the 21st century, I will never have to buy jewelry again. I had to get a U-Haul to get all the jewelry back to New York. And I, it's, it's mind-blowing. Uh, I should just do a website just so people could see the amount of jewelry she had. So again, I'm thankful to her for that as well. Um, it's, it's remarkable. 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, 30s. It's just... It's, I've had several people who've done um, uh, fashion photo shoots recently, and uh, they've all borrowed jewelry and, and been ecstatic about it. I just, I, I like her so, so much. She reminds me so much <laughs> of my grandma, because my grandma, she was a collector, and she was a greeter at Walmart, actually. Oh! <laughs> when you said that. Parent was... The parent company. Exactly. So you also worked on a little show called Saturday Night Live. I am sure costumes are a huge asset to the actors, quickly switching from characters and sketches, but how did working on live TV differ from other projects? And uh, do you have a favorite sketch or special guest you worked with while on the show? Sure, well, Saturday Night Live are definitely some of my favorite memories. Um, I started many years ago dressing Chris Parnell for a couple of seasons when he was on. Uh, and I can tell you that you will never get an adrenaline rush like you do working on that show uh, because everything has to happen a certain amount of time. And what the audience doesn't know is sometimes the actors change clothes right there in front of the audience or quickly adjacent. Or in the, I remember one time uh, Chris was playing um, George Bush and 
the, the shot was just from his chest to his head and it was really tight. And so what the, he also was the first thing you saw after live from New York, after the intros were done, he was the first person you saw because he was in the sketch with the host at the time. And he had to go from George Bush to a rocker, like a, like a headbanger rocker. Yes. And what people don't know is I was literally standing next to him with my hand on his leg so that when the lights go out, live from Saturday night, he, he, but he's been looking in those lights, so his vision is impaired. So you grab him by the hand, whip, whip him around, start taking his clothes off right there in front of everyone. And then what also people don't know is, you know, like sometimes you're watching the show and you're coming back and there's a photo of the guest host on the yes. screen. Yes. Sometimes it's there for a second, sometimes it's there for several seconds. That's because someone hasn't made a change. Like, like they're still changing, they're still setting up because it goes so fast. It's impossible. Um, so, but what they find out is the stage managers know who has the quickest costume change for each break. And they send over, in this case with us, and they sent over a stage manager. And they count down in your ear. Ten, are you going to make it? Nine, are you going to make it? Eight, are you going to make it? It's so stressful. Horrible. But again, an adrenaline rush like you can never, ever imagine. Loved working on that show so much. So then Tom Broker, who is uh, the customer designer, and Eric Justin, uh, called me when they were doing their 40th anniversary season and said hey could you come in and design some of the pre-tapes the fake movie commercials the fake you know uh, uh the commercials with movie trailers and all that and i was like sure and that is just a whole thing in itself he thought it was hard to do the show you get you go in like wednesday evening around eight o'clock and it's when they have like a big meeting of all the writers and they go through and decide what sketches they're going to do for that week and you get handed your script for the pre-tape at eight o'clock you then have from eight o'clock and usually it was there was another girl jill who did them with me uh but you know separately because there were so many of them they do because they they shoot more than they actually see on camera just to see how things test yeah i will explain that later uh you get your scripts and then you have from which now is 9 30 on a wednesday night until four o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday to design all of it. Because on Thursday at four o'clock in the afternoon, putting the actors into fitting. Because oh then at three o'clock on Friday morning, you start shooting it. So for basically, you know, 40, 56 hours, you don't sleep. You just w work through the night. And I can tell you, you've never worked so hard in your life because I, because of my background, always got to get the period ones. Yeah. That involved all the elaborate costume, which I couldn't have been happier. I was so grateful. And I remember one of my, my favorite ones I did was um, with the actor Martin Freeman from The Hobbit. Uh -huh. We did, we did, um, it was the cast of, it was called Hobbit Office. It was the cast of The Hobbit working in the office from the TV show The Office. But there were like extras and, um, and orcs and all of this, I mean, in, incredibly large amount of work and there just was no time to get it all done um but i do remember uh on sunday reading a variety review of the show and they mentioned that sketch and they actually even they did mention the costumes in the hobbit office so i was really really uh grateful for that they did a the black game of thrones one and i on will be truthfully honest i had no idea about i didn't know what game of thrones was but i had never seen it just working you just don't have time the leisure so i i was like sure i can do game of thrones no problem so i ran home and i had to watch three episodes of game of thrones just to get the feel of the show and then like design it overnight didn't sleep and then i went and pulled costumes from one of the rental houses and then we had fittings in the afternoon but you have to build stuff you know for people keenan thompson requires things built for him and you know, you have to change out all the trims and everything so it looks fresh and real and up to date. And again, you 24 hours and there it is. So I love Saturday Night Live. I, the, the people there are great. Um, yeah. uh, but you get to take a big breath when you step away from that show, which is kind of nice. And then Tom and Eric have been doing it for so, so many seasons. I, I don't know how they do it. They're just remarkable people. I mean, there really isn't a more iconic New York show 
to have been a part of than Saturday Night Live. The gift to the crew for the 40th anniversary was um, like a show jacket, like a bomber jacket, embroidered SNL and all the bars. And I wore it out one time and I got stopped. I was, we went to the theater to see a show and I wore the jacket. And I had to actually to ask the woman to stop asking me questions about the show because the show was about to start. So I never wore it again. I have it in the closet. You know, maybe one day I'll get it out. But you, once you wear it, people are so uh, hypnotized by that show. Have there been times in your career you felt opposition in getting a job or felt that you had to fight for your vision once you were on the project? And I mean, that, that's totally up to you how you want to elaborate on it. But I well, yeah, sure. it's to say that like not everybody has walked in and got every job that they wanted to get. Right. Um, well, I always try to just take jobs that I can really connect with and I feel like I have something to offer. Um, I, I have had my fair uh, uh, share of passes on my, on my ideas. And it's just part of, part of what it is. I don't think anything's uh, intentional. I think, you know, directors and writers just like have a vision already because they've been working on a show so long and they just, try to find the right person to to bring it uh to fruition i don't think so and i think anytime like anyone's ever said like when you're in a job and a director or writer will be like oh i don't know about that it's great because you know what it gives you another chance to go back and see if there's a better better way to improve on what you think you're you're doing or if sometimes it's rare but sometimes if you feel so strongly like th there's a instance um uh I did a show on uh, Amazon Prime called Tales from the Loop. Yeah. Um, and there's a scene where the, a little girl is playing in a field with a robot. And I took a lot of inspiration from the artist who did the paintings that the show was based on. And I was like, oh, she really should be in this, this, this like period little blue athletic jacket. I was like, it would really, it's sort of a little strong for her. And she's facing this robot and she's deaf. She's the character was deaf and I said I just I think it's like her, a little piece of armor for her and he's like oh, I don't know I don't know I don't know and I was like okay and I, and I you know I let go, go and I I just went and tried to come up with a different approach to it but I just couldn't see a better one yeah. and I went back to him and I was like well long story short it was the poster for the show her in that jacket so I was really happy that I I stood my ground on that one and uh and it came out and you know if they when the writers and producers and directors, they see your passion and they can, you can convince them that it's right and that it's a good visual moment for the show, they're, they're usually done. And I think if you have someone that trusts the creative heads that they've hired, they're also going right. to, and they realize if they're realistic with themselves, they can't control the whole ship. They have to, they have to delegate. Exactly, um, exactly. Now you helped bring the world of Oscar winner three billboards. Oh my goodness. Again, another Sam project. Um, <laughs> so perfectly captured that unglamorous working class small town feel. It was it was it was gritty and it was it was visceral on camera. And it, was, it was gorgeous. Um, what was the experience working on the film and bringing a real life story to the big screen? Because you you worked on that one, unless I'm mistaken, you worked on that one before you did uh, Fosse Burden, correct? Correct, correct. It was like two years before, I believe, or a year and a half before. Um, well, this is another project that I had the privilege of working with costume designer Melissa Toth on. Uh, we shot this in Asheville, North Carolina, in all the surrounding rural towns. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a wonderful working experience, um, particularly getting to focus on the life of the people in these rural towns mm -hmm. and how they wear clothing out of necessity and not for fashion or not for how they look or feel. They wear because they have no choice but to put something on every day and go do their job and go live their life. And that was really important that we got, as you said, grit, but we, you know, we aged everything and, and the, the clothing told its own story without having to say anything. And that's what we really, really worked hard to get across. And um, not to mention the brilliant, you'll agree, the brilliant cast that wore these costumes who brought it even more to life than we did in just getting it ready. Um, uh, it was great. It, I, I, I love I love when you take away the glamour sometimes and just try to go for the, the real slice of America. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty solid. Yeah. And I think that there is, there's something to be said for a project when you can watch it 
on mute and between the actor's emotions and the costuming and like the way that the shot is set up, you know what you're going to get from watching a trailer completely on mute. And that's one of them that hands down you can, you, you know what that, that story is. That story. Yeah, I, I love that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try watching trailers now on mute first. I, I like that. That's great. So streaming. <laughs> 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 Every time. <laughs> Now, when doing my research, I noticed you've worked with Uma Thurman on a number of projects like Prime, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, and Percy Jackson. How does costuming and working with one actor on a film differ from your normal projects? And you've kind of already answered this a little bit with Sarah Jessica Parker, so you can answer this however you would like to. Well, first, I mean, I guess I have to bring it up again. I am a lucky human being. I get to work with these amazing people. Um, I will say, I will say about this about Sarah Jessica and Cam and Michelle and in, in uh, Uma. It is nice because they are absolutely just people, and they they know they're just people, and that's how what they bring to the table is just being a human. And it's so these all of this work is just. It's a, it's a joy. It's a it's a lovely gift I get to to do. But um, yeah, I had the good fortune of working with Uma for about eight years as her dresser on numerous projects. Uh, Uma is yet another wonderfully, incredibly smart person about clothing and and you know what it brings to the table. Uh, but it's often harder dressing just one person as it is to dressing multiple actors. Um, uh, when you dress one actor, you often form like a strong trust or a bond with them. Mm-hmm. And you're often asked for your opinions and helping making their their the actor look their best. Sometimes you run lines with them in the trailer and, and and does this look okay? You're watching the monitor during takes and they'll often ask you, you know, does it look all right? Does it? And you know that's a really tough position to be in. Um, and you're often there to comfort them and and just having someone with their best interest at heart is is. Uh, makes that makes a whole world of difference and i think that's why um and i were together we were such a great team for so long um i remember we were doing a, a film called life before her eyes we were shooting it up in connecticut and it was we'd been shooting since about six o'clock in the evening it was now three o'clock in the morning we were in the woods in the pouring rain in a river knee deep in mud so i looked at her and i knew instantly what she wanted and that is a gift that I am so fortunate to have. And one of the things I, I feel like helps me keep working with the same people is knowing what they want before they even have to say it. And, and, and when you're an actor, as you know, and you're saying lines all day long and talking to directors and talking, the last thing you want to do is keep talking. So if you have someone there who knows what you need, yeah. It just is, is a world of comfort, I think. All right, going completely off of that, <laughs> and that was a very heart-touching story. Everybody has spent their quarantine a little differently. And while <laughs> a lot of people were baking banana bread and binge-watching Netflix, you exploded on TikTok. And we have to talk about these videos and what the idea was behind them. And like, you became a content creator in quarantine like it's i, I well i um yeah so I, uh, just before um just before the pandemic lockdown started uh, i was helping out a friend who was designing a, a, a another project and the costume supervisor on that show was always on i mean he was doing his job but he was always on his phone and i was like what are you on your phone all the time and he's like oh i'm just scrolling through tiktok and i was like what's tiktok and he showed me and he's like you would do good on here you should get on there and i was like oh, no, no, no anyway so quarantine hit and i went back to it and i looked at it and i was like okay and i i let it stew for a while but then i was watching like all of these nurses and doctors going into hospitals day after day after day and i was watching all of these people like volunteering and helping in new york city when quarantine first hit was the epicenter and it, you really couldn't do anything here and i thought what if i could make people smile what if th- that was my gift just like 59 seconds of an escape to your day they tell you on tiktok you, you to be successful you should make two to three videos a day and post now, they're talking about videos where you're just holding the phone and go, look at what if I'm eating at lunch? And oh, look at me dancing. I don't dance. 
I'm not going to take my shirt off like half of TikTok. So I thought, well, what if I do these, recreate iconic moments in music and theater and film and television, and I just play every single character. And I never knew, I've never edited anything in my life. So I had to download and learn, I learned five different editing programs. I invested in green screens, blue screens, lighting, a green screen floor. I My bedroom turned into a walk-in closet. I, I started TikTok with three wigs. I now have over 118 wigs. I have a storage unit full of so many costumes, it's mind-blowing. But anyway, so I got going on TikTok, and like about a month in, I had a, one video go viral. It went, you know, worldwide, and I was like, wow. And so then I kept working, and then I decided, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to do the opening of Bring It On? And I was just every single cheerleader. And so it took me about, I don't know, it took me about 16 hours of shooting, and about another 12 hours of editing, but I shot it and I did it. And then it's 59 seconds. It just happens to be perfectly 59 seconds if you, if you ever, ever see it. And, um, and there was a cheerleading group or actual cheerleading troop on TikTok who did it and they went viral doing it. But, and there were other people who did it, but I was like, no one's ever. So I got a replica of the costume. I replicated every character's wig and I shot the video. And I posted it on the Monday. And on Wednesday, a friend of mine in Germany was on a cheerleading website. And that was on their home screen was the video, my video of the cheerleading routine from Bring It On. And then I had a second viral video. It was everywhere. It was on people were sending me from Facebook and, and Instagram. And I, I walked down the street and I literally, you see this happen. You're like, there's no way. And this woman looked at me funny and I was like, I didn't say anything. And I walked into a CBS and I came to see that she was standing there and she had it, brought it up on her screen. She goes, isn't this you? And I was like, how did you know that? She goes, well, it looks just like you. Because I didn't shave. I kept my beard in every single video. I thought that was kind of fun. But after 200 videos, I stepped away because I just needed a break. But, you know, it's draining shooting 16 hours a day. I was having a full-time job. Plus, financially investing in clothing and it doesn't take a toll and when you're not working and you're not sure when you're going to go back to work uh it, it you know i put a pause on it but it looks like things are ramping up again for work but not quickly and now that the covid has set in there's several jobs here in your city who had to shut down because some cast members have gotten sick so i think i'm going to um quickly rejoin tiktok for a couple more months but the golden girls yeah. And the designing women one. The way so, that you um, portray all of the women and you like have some of their little like nuances and oddity. Love it. Oh, uh, you're you're very kind. Thank Love you. It. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Last question we ask everyone on the podcast. What is one thing you wish you could go back and tell your younger self? Though so, I mean it looked like yeah. it, it seems like you did okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I would definitely tell myself that everything happens for a reason. Hmm. Uh to be patient and work hard. I, I grew up just as computers were coming around and there were no cell phones, there was no social media. So there was no one to reach out to and get instant reassurance or, or you know, positive reinforcement from. Uh, I struggled a lot uh, growing up, but I'm grateful for that struggle. It, it made me absolutely who I am today. So I, I guess I would also tell, tell myself to believe in myself and dream as big as you want because nothing is out of reach. That's so good. I'm gonna write that down and put that on a mirror. That is so good, Joseph. Oh, all right, you. well, thank you so much for all of oh, your- Oh, my pleasure. And like your stories and just, I could honestly, I could talk to you for another hour. This is like my interview with Jane. I'm like, wait, let's talk more about fashion goods. I want to be respectful of each Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was my absolute pleasure. It really was. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. And to my guest today, Joseph LaCourt, we hope you enjoyed the show. To learn more about Joseph, you can find him on Instagram and TikTok. And let's be honest, who doesn't want more musical numbers and Golden Curls content on their feet? That's what I thought. I'm Laura Linda Bradley, and this is What's My Frame.